the way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I am back, and my brilliant contributors are with me this hour. Niambi, Niambi Carter, who's a professor at the University of Maryland, is joining me. And a little later in the segment, uh, Professor Tyrone Howard from UCLA will be back with us. Welcome back, Professor Carter. Thank you for having me, Ariva. Okay, you know who Bobby Rush is, Professor Carter. You know he began (laughs) politics as the co-founder of the Illinois Black Panther. Well, I should say uh, his foray into politics began because he was the co-founder of the Illinois Black Panther Party in the 60s. Uh, He's actually portrayed in that movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, and Daryl, I think it was a guy named Daryl Gibson that portrayed him in that movie. Uh, he later became an alderman. He worked alongside Harold Washington, who was the first African-American mayor in the city of Chicago. He got elected to Congress in 1992. He's been challenged uh, for a seat. He actually beat Barack Obama when o- Barack Obama ran in 2000. Uh, this guy is pretty steeped in dim politics. I would say progressive politics. How is it that he threw his support behind Vallis against an African-American progressive candidate for mayor in Chicago? Well, I mean, I think that's something we'll have to ask Bobby Rush. I mean, I think he also has a distinction of being the only person to beat Barack Obama, which I think is also worth saying. But, you know, to your point, look, I mean, people change right and i think our notion of what may be progressive may be too progressive because if you look at sort of that black power um politics it's not that far away from black conservative politics they look different but on a lot of metrics they're the same no government intervention more community control all that kind of stuff that could be one possibility right but the other thing that's i think shocking in which you're sort of getting at is sort of the underneath he went after uh, Lori Lightfoot saying that she was for the FOP, she's the police, and Vallis is running as a law and order <laughs> candidate. So I don't know what has happened. He said something to the effect of like, Vallis is the most uh, prepared. He has the, 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 I guess, the most experience. I don't know, but it does look like this is a case of strange uh, bedfellows here. Yeah, I asked my Chicago friends. I saw this article early this morning and immediately texted my friends in Chicago like, what the hell? What's up? And you talk about going after Lori Lightfoot about the police. The Black Panthers spent their whole time in existence, you know, going against the police and the establishment. And Paul Ballas is, you know, the police... Uh, you know, he, he's synonymous. Let's just say he's synonymous with the police. And he's, you know, he's got a lot of, he's taken a lot of heat for being closely aligned to Republicans. Lots of tweets, lots of things on social media suggest that he's more aligned with Republicans than he is with Democrats. I see uh, Dr. Howard has joined us. Maybe he has, Dr. Carter, an answer for us because you and I are scratching our heads trying to figure out, uh, <laughs> Dr. Howard, you know, are the Black Panthers rolling over in their grave trying to figure out how it is that Bobby Rush, the co-founder of the Illinois Black Panther Parties, uh, is supporting Paul Ballas in this election for mayor in Chicago? They would be, Ariva. And, you know, first of all, thank you for having me here. I think it comes down to everybody has a price. 
And I have to only wonder if Bobby Rush has a price that he's getting from the Dallas campaign to 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 endorse him because so much of what the Panthers stood for, at least what I thought they stood for, and Bobby Rush in particular, seemed to run counter to everything that Dallas's platform is all around. Uh, you know, standardization, criminal pro pro crime, uh, sort of you know the ways in which they sort of just erode the public trust. That's just not what the Panthers stood for. But like I said, everyone has a price, and I just have to wonder. We have to wonder if there's a price for. For, uh, for Bobby Rush. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring it up, but I'm glad you did. So, Dr. Carter, in this text that I sent to my friend, he's like, well, you know, it don't take much but a donation to a black church to get a black pastor. <laughs> hey, that's, just, you know, I'm just reporting. And Bobby Listen. Rush is a pastor and he has a church. And, you know, so there's speculation that Vallis dropped some money or someone associated with Vallis. We don't know. You know, we're just speculating about here. Uh, but donations to black churches, we know, can cause black pastors to uh, move in a certain direction. I, I, it's just so puzzling because Brandon, who's in the race against Vallis, has been endorsed by Jim Clyburn and Bernie Sanders. So it's not as if you could say, well, he's some extreme leftist. To your point, uh, Professor Carter, about black conservatives looking like, uh, you know, black progressives sometimes. But but this candidate, the African-American running in this race, has the endorsement of someone as progressive as Sanders, Mm -hmm. who considers himself a democratic socialist, and Jim Clyburn, who is as centrist as you get. Mm -hmm. So... well, look, I think we I think we have a notion that black politics is always progressive. And I even think we have a notion that black nationalist groups like the Black Panther Party are always progressive. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. But people also change over time, right? Bobby Rush is no longer a young man. And as you said, he may have other kinds of interests at this point. You got to remember, Clarence Thomas was once a black nationalist. So there are lots of people who have come through those circles who've been churned through the political process. But, but wait a minute, and and Professor Carter, it wasn't that long ago that Lori Lightfoot just I mean, got elected four years ago. Historically so. not long ago, <laughs> but he is not, you know, a, a 20 or 30-something-year-old man at this point. In no, his no, life. no, I he know that. Re- I wasn't making reference to that. I was making oh, reference oh, oh. to recently he was going after oh, yeah. Lori Lightfoot for oh, her. For sure. So, for sure. Now, that part of it. That I'm part. Saying, yeah, he is he has clearly figured out something in these last few years that has changed his opinion. Again, what he has said on the record is that he views this person as as most um, prepared. We will never know probably what the conversation has been between Bobby Rush and, and Paul Ballas. Like we will probably never know. We can speculate. Right. Yeah. Um, but we probably will never know. Maybe it's money. Maybe it is that he thinks that he has a better vision. Maybe he said, Lori Lightfoot did such a terrible job. This guy has to be better than even this, um, up than than Brandon Johnson, right? Who many people, even Jesse Jackson has endorsed him, right? I mean, this guy has endorsements, both local and national out the wazoo. But for some reason, Bobby Rush is not feeling the love. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe his endorsement wasn't sought. I mean, we saw Doug Wilder do something similar in Virginia, right, with um, Glenn Youngkin. So we don't know what is moving the needle for Bobby Rush at this moment. You're right. We don't. And maybe we'll never know. But we do know it's bad and we know it's wrong. And we know (laughs) black folks are going to pay a price for it. So there's some things we do know. We know when we elect the so-called Democrats who are really, you know, Republicans 
who are, you know, posing as Democrats to get elected in Democratic cities like a city like Chicago. We know where their hearts are. Mm -hmm. We know where their policies are. And we know it's never going to be good for black folks. So. Uh, Bobby Rush, shame on you. I don't. That's all I got to say. You know, it's, it's just shame on you. <laughs> sit it out. If you don't like Brandon Johnson for whatever reason, just sit it out. But do not try to convince black folks that they need to vote for a guy who wants to increase policing, who wants to, you know, take the country back or take Chicago back to an era of, you know, the kind of policing that we know is very, very detrimental to African-Americans in our communities. And Chicago has a lot of issues. And it is not time to turn back. It's time to go forward in that city. I used to live there. And I'm just saddened that someone who could be in Congress, be the leader that he was, uh, take this kind of position. But I got to ask you, Dr. Howard, I don't know if you heard my lead in. I'm so disturbed about this shooting in this Virginia school. And I think the focus is all wrong. 90 state-of-the-art metal detectors for first graders to walk through when they come to school. Security guards. That's the solution to a six-year-old shooting a teacher. Is that where we should be going, talking about going forward, not backwards, and we think about education? Not at all, because part of what we know, Ariva, is the fact that we tend to put more security mechanisms and measures in place in schools where black and brown children go. We tend to have those mechanisms in place where poor children are, and they do nothing to serve as a deterrent for crime. Uh, if we really wanted to get to the heart of this matter, what we need to do is think about better gun control, A. We might think about better uh, mental health supports, B. We might think about how we can best support families, C. I just think it's the ongoing criminalization of young Black youth, right, that we were going to show how we're tough on crime by putting more uh, what I call punitive measures in place. Uh, how can you put yourself in the right mindset to say, I'm coming here to learn today, when I've got to go through a metal detector? How can you put yourself in the in the frame of mind if like this is a place that I will be nurtured and cared and loved for when I feel like I'm being criminalized or surveilled or punished just to enter the building? And it's not just the entering of the building, but it's just the way in which we know black and brown youth are treated when they're in schools, right? Constantly being surveilled, constantly being over-policed, constantly being over-punished, and might I add, constantly being under-loved and under-taught. And so I think Virginia has it all wrong. It's just another knee-jerk reaction that says that we're tough on crime because of this horrific situation that happened. We need to find out what were the the, the sort of steps we can take on the front end to be more preventive so that we don't have this kind of situation occur in the past, in the past uh, happen in the present. We tend to be more reactive than we should be proactive. Yeah, and we didn't plan that, Dr. Howard. You and I did not have a conversation. And I don't even think you were listening because you were off when I did my <laughs> monologue. Exactly what I said. We need to be focused on gun control. We need to be focused on the safety net and focused on the system that failed this kid. Because how is it that a sixth grade, uh, first grade, and we know, I guess there's some reporting that the kid had some issues and his parents were actually having to come to school with him and so he had some behavior issues that required his parents to be there which I don't think is a good idea obviously that you know parents have to go to work they have other things to do they're not they can't be the babysitters for their kids in school but it just angers me to think you're going to put five and six year olds through metal detectors and have I guess armed security or some kind of you know, show a force in a school and then expect kids not to come out on the other side and emulate violence or be violent themselves. Uh, Dr. Carter, you are in the DMV. Is this the way, you know, what are the locals saying about this? I heard what some of those parents are saying and knee-jerk reaction, metal detectors, state-of-the-art, whatever that is. I don't know what a state-of-the-art metal right. detector is when you're talking about a five-year-old. But what's the local response to this? 
Well, I think a lot like what you and Dr. Howard expressing, I think a lot of people have a problem with this notion that we are already habituating children right, to these kinds of shows of authority and force. I mean, the school to prison pipeline is a thing, and now we're bringing it to the schools that are mimicking these institutions that many of our children are shuttled into because of these systemic kinds of issues. And this is really just a short-term show to look like you're doing something, but there was clearly something missed in this case. And then you're going to do something like medical detectors, which really makes the, the problem the children. Not to mention the fact that the people, the staff and the teachers and others who have to come through those same metal detectors and work in those buildings, are they going to now act like wardens? Right. I mean, we've seen what happens when we treat the children that we are responsible for caring for like offenders, right? Like people who are going to hurt us, right? It creates a space that is rife for abuse and all kinds of things run amok. As Dr. Howard already talked about, our children are over surveilled. They're more likely to be suspended. They're more likely to be sent for expulsion for rather minor things when we talk about um, young kids' behaviors. And then I think about not just the little, little ones, right? The, the kindergartners and first graders. I also think about the young kids who are getting ready to go into middle schools, right? The, the, the 10, 11 and 12 year olds who are really aware what this looks like. We already treat black children like adults. Right, right in miniature, even though they may be six, seven, eight, nine years old. We always already think that they're older. We treat them and attribute all kinds of adult behaviors to uh, young children. So I am just very concerned that this is going to lead to a lot more negative consequences. And as you said, nothing has yet been said about gun control, because I think we decided I think once we saw what happened in Columbine, then again in Sandy Hook with Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, that our children are expendable. Right. Well, that's thank you for mentioning that, because that's the bigger point here. None of that works. You can put exactly. a million different state of the art metal detectors and security guards. It doesn't work. It hasn't deterred us from having to come and talk about these shooting cases, whether it's students who have been shot. In this case, teacher, a teacher that was shot. Thank God she you know, wasn't killed. But I, I think what disturbed me really about listening to that uh, call that these parents were having or reading about it, nobody asked about the mental health of the kid. Nobody asked about his well-being. No one talked about what are we doing to protect our children and addressing issues that arise with children because obviously something terribly is wrong in that little kid's life that he would bring a gun to school and point it at his teacher and then pull the trigger and he was apparently threatening other kids. So, uh, so misfocused. The whole conversation was, was just so misfocused and you know, the adults in the room were not being adults in the room, uh, which is also very scary. When we come forward, our justice correspondent, Dion Raymond, is here for the latest in the L.A. City Council member Mark Riley Thomas federal bribery trial. Lots happened in that courtroom today and more on trending news. Will Donald Trump actually be indicted? Not today, maybe tomorrow. News, sports and traffic up next. KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 
I'm back, and this is our daily legal segment. And we have been following the trial of Margaret Lee Thomas. The defense got underway today, uh, calling six witnesses in rapid fire succession, including his son, Sebastian Ridley Thomas, his primary care doctor, and several LA County employees finally make an appearance in this trial that's about the county. Uh, they didn't show up in the prosecution's case, but apparently two testified today, including the woman who was the CEO, that's the chief executive officer of the county. At the time of the conduct that the government claims Ridley Thomas uh, illegally awarded contracts to the University of Southern California. So today the question is, how strong was the defense's first day? And here to answer that question is our own justice correspondent, Dion Raymond. She has been in that courthouse every day since this trial began. And today is no different. Welcome, Dion. Hi, Ariva. How are you? Fantastic. So, uh, Dion, before I get to the ultimate question, which is how strong was the defense's day, uh, walk us through the six witnesses that testified in pretty rapid fire succession, because I don't think the prosecution ever got through six witnesses in a day. No way. The defense really started off very strong, Ariva, and very solid. And um, by calling six witnesses in six hours, they really moved very steadily. And so first and foremost, we heard from Dr. Malouk, who is Sebastian Ridley Thomas's primary care physician. And the significance of that, Ariva, was is that the defense needed to show the jury that the government was selective and misleading in the type of medical information that it put forth in its case in chief. And what they did show uh, was that um, SRT had um, med- medical conditions that were significant non-trivial and were persistent. And that he also had um, requested a mental health referral as far back as 2016 due to his work stress. And so this this was a very important point to make um, by the defense today. Now, how did the, um, let me me stop you there. I want to know, obviously the prosecution had an opportunity to cross-examine this primary uh, care physician for Sebastian Ridley Thomas. What did they do with him on cross? They attempted to undermine um, his testimony that he, in fact, recommended that SRT resign and look for another um, field or other kinds of work. And so uh, their point was, well, how bad could his health have been if he was applying to graduate school at USC and and looking for work in nonprofit and at USC? And the um, defense came back with, with their clap back. And the doctor did testify that the the rigor of being in an online graduate program and part-time nonprofit work didn't have the kind of rigor or stress associated with being a member of the California State Assembly and all the travel, et cetera, that he had to do. Fantastic. Okay, let's move on and talk about those county witnesses. The county witnesses did not show up in the prosecution's case, even though this case is about the county. So I think we were all expecting to see county witnesses today, and apparently they did show up. So who testified uh, for the defense from the county of Los Angeles? Ariva, there was Sashi uh, Hamai, former interim and actual county CEO, Carly Katona, former associate chief deputy for um, MRT and former chief of staff. Um, of his um, for District 10. Also, Greg Pollock from DMH, a chief deputy director uh, from 2017 to 2022. And also Dr. Hockman, who was a senior health deputy for MRT. And collectively, um, they testified to county processes with regard to how things get on the, um, the Board of Supervisors agenda, how contracts were approved, and that MRT really hadn't done anything unusual than, than um, what he had done before. When you say unusual, 
was there testimony that the contracts at issue, the contracts that went uh, from the county to USC followed a pretty traditional uh, county process? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that the contract, the subject matter of the contracts also were things that were very, very important to, to MRT with regards to homelessness, with regards to telehealth. And in fact, um, I know here from uh, with regards to Dr. Hockman, who was a senior health deputy, he said that um, that the telehealth contract it was important because it supported um, vulnerable populations. It was creative. It was innovative. And that he didn't even recall um, Dr. Ridley Thomas even ever discussing telehealth um, before he recommended it. Let me ask you this. How did the prosecution go after these four county employees? Well, you know, it's fair game, Ariva, for them to present um, evidence or ask questions that would tend to show bias or lack of credibility or that they just don't know what they're talking about. I, I, I want to, you know, put out there in particular the government's cross-examination of Carly Katona. First of all, I found all of the, the county witnesses to be professional, respectful, and just very straight down the line. They didn't come off as advocates. What I liked about Carly Katona is that she testified in a way where she was actually relatable to the jury. And I was very surprised when the government uh, cross-examination, I found them to be very hostile and very aggressive um, towards her. And so with Carly, um, the, the, the point that they were trying to score was, well, okay, all of this is fine and good, essentially, but you really weren't involved in any of the contract, and, and I'm sorry, any of the communications or conversations between MRT and Marilyn Flynn, which she was not. Okay, so what did the, did the defense come back and try to rehabilitate Carly on that, that point? And I guess I, I got to note, too, that the judge got a little irritated with the prosecution in terms of their cross-examination of, of Carly. Um, it wasn't Carly, actually. I believe it was another witness where um, the, um, the the judge told the um, attorney for, for, for the government, you're done, sit down. You're done, sit down? <laughs> okay. You're done, sit down. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really think that they scored much, uh, to be honest, Ariva. Uh, more so with regards to um, Sebastian Ridley Thomas and him needing to resign and then taking on all this other work. Again, I, I felt that the defense sufficiently um, addressed that point. But I, I really didn't see them scoring any points today, particularly since with each witness uh, from the county, the um, defense brought out that that the FBI did not reach out to them to find out more about these county processes or to better understand the contracts that are at issue. The, the judge has gotten pretty active uh, telling a lawyer to sit down. You're done. And, and I think the judge, in a, another colorful comment, uh, said that, you know, this is boring. <laughs> well, she, she does, you know, well, let me put it this way. She's consistent, you know. Letting, but did that happen? Um, and give us the context. Well. That's a pretty bold well, and colorful statement from a judge. Well, she feels that things are tedious and that they need to move along quicker. And she's told the defense, if you have witnesses that, that are repetitive, then, you know, I'm not going to allow it. But it, things were one of the reasons she might be a little frustrated is because it was very tedious and it was very um, repetitive on the part of the of the government. But now she's pushing the defense to move things along and they responded. But do you feel like that she her pushing? Did that cause them to get off their game or you think they were able to make the points that you know they plan to make? I think that they made the points that they plan to make. I, I really kudos to defense counsel who had to take um, uh, Dr. Malouk on direct because she really had to, to pivot because 
the goal was to put these documents in front of him for him to refer to, but she had to constantly lay and keep laying foundations and to refresh his recollection. Of course, he's not going to have an independent recollection of all these details. And yet the FBI agent was literally led through his testimony on direct with the script in front of him. So why wasn't the doctor allowed to do that? I'm running out of time, but that's curious to me. Why wasn't the doctor allowed to have his file and testify based on records in his file that he created? Well, her concern was that she that, you know, that they all and particularly her hadn't read through everything. And so when the defense would um, move, um, you know, when they would move a document into evidence, she said that she would, you know, take it under submission. She constantly said, I'm taking it under submission. So she wants to look at it, Ariva, I think, before she um, before she rules. Uh, Real quickly, Deanne, what's coming up tomorrow? Any uh, preview of what the defense is going to do tomorrow in terms of its witnesses? Um, not too much in that regard. They've got a couple that are on tap. Um, it, the day did end on an on a funny note. There was a, there was only four minutes left, Ariba, right before two thirty, and so um, defense counsel said, "You know, we've only got four minutes left. Can we just adjourn for the day?" And she said, "Well, I'm assuming you don't have a four minute witness," which of course they did not, and so that's how it ended. All right, Deanne, thank you for your excellent coverage, your comprehensive coverage. I know you will be back in that courtroom tomorrow morning and you will be back here tomorrow at 435, bringing us uh, inside uh, everything that's happening inside that courtroom as Mark Riley Thomas moves forward with his defense. And at this pace, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this case doesn't wrap up by this Friday. So make sure you stay tuned to KBLA Talk 1580. We are providing the most comprehensive coverage of the United States of America versus Mark Riley Thomas. And when we come forward, more of today's trending news with my expert contributors right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back, and I'm back with my brilliant contributors. Dr. Niambi Carter from the University of Maryland is here, and Dr. Tyrone Howard is with us. Uh, as much as I would like to, Dr. Carter and Dr. Howard, we can't go a whole hour without talking about good old Donald Trump. So I'm just going to ask you this, Dr. Carter. You are in the DMV. What is the mood like? We're hearing about all of these security measures that are being taken. I think all the folks that would protest and do damage are in jail. So I'm not sure who these people are <laughs> that can do any kind of dirt because the Proud Boys and their crew have all been arrested from January 6th. But is there a sense in the DMV that something's about to jump off or people about to get you know crazy as it relates to Donald Trump getting arrested? I know that most people are probably thinking of it as top of mind because maybe because it's supposed to happen in New York and he's not in DC. So maybe people are thinking it's, it's not going to happen, but I think being in DC more generally, people are typically a high alert. There are just so many places to attack so many things that are attack worthy that people are probably thinking about it in one way, but on the other hand, not, I mean, it's like, People have been threatening that they were going to arrest Donald Trump forever, right? And it's like, okay, I guess it'll happen. Maybe it'll happen. I think everybody's not going to believe it until it happens. And so in that respect, people aren't necessarily having their safety at the top of mind in the same way. Um, But, I mean, if you go downtown now, there's always more security than we're used to seeing um, because of the nonsense of January 6th and other attacks that have happened in the recent years. Well, thank you, because you gave us our daily dose of Trump, and we can move on. Uh, <laughs> so, Dr. Howard, LAUSD, okay, 
30,000 workers, 400,000 plus students didn't go to school today. I think what shocked me the most about this, these workers, $20,000 is the average salary. How do you live in Los Angeles if you make $20,000 a year? Where do you sleep? I, I just can't even believe that. Now, someone told me, a, a school personnel person said, look, Ariva, these people don't work four times. If you're a cafeteria worker, maybe you work four hours a day. If you're a dress, bus driver, maybe you drive for four hours a day. I, I get that, that a lot of these are not full-time jobs, but what is going on with this school district? And I imagine school districts around the country paying workers less than, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year, which is what it takes to live in any big city, particularly a big city like Los Angeles. Yeah, I would argue, Ariba, that it's more than thirty dollars to $40,000 a year that it costs to live in a place like Los Angeles. There are some estimates by the U.S. Census Bureau that put it at close to $55,000, $56,000 a year in a city like Los Angeles. I think this is a reckoning moment for labor because we have normalized poverty in this country. We've normalized poverty in a city like Los Angeles. And when we talk about the unhoused, I think we have this notion of the unhoused, of people who are kind of down and out, who are on the streets, who are down in Skid Row. And let's be clear. That is a component of the unhoused. We also think about those individuals who have mental health issues and substance abuse issues. That's part of the unhoused. But what we don't talk about when it comes to the unhoused are the working unhoused. Folks who we see every single day who show up in schools like uh, here in Los Angeles, who basically provide meals for young people, who provide instructional support for teachers, who drive buses. You, we'd be surprised by how many of these folks are unhoused because they make $17, $18 an hour in a place that's very difficult to live in. So I think this is a moment for us all to recognize that if we say we are pro-labor, we cannot say we value the education of our young people, but then the people who oftentimes serve as the backbone for our schools, receptionists, uh, support staff, uh, counselors, nurses, the folks who do all the dirty work that if they were not there, our schools would not operate to not put our support behind them. So I have to say, I applaud UTLA and all the other folks who are supporting this strike because I think it's a moment of reckoning to say we have to do better, we can do better, we must do better. Now, I do have concerns about the fact that we have young people who will miss three days of school and any day of lost instructional time can do some significant damage to our young people. We learned that from the pandemic. Right. However, I think sometimes we have to take a stand for something much larger in the short run to give us a benefit down the line. Yeah, I just did the math on this. So that $20,000, that's like $415, $16 a week. And I know one of the offers that the school district has made, Dr. Carter, is a 23% raise, which is basically $95. So that $416 becomes about $516. And that's about $1,600, $1,700 a month. I don't even know if there's an apartment in Los Angeles that a one-bedroom apartment, less mm -hmm. known an apartment for a family of four or five or six that you can rent for that amount of money. So basically, and most of these people who are in these jobs, we know are women and they are people of color. So that means women who are mothers, I would imagine too, are working multiple jobs just to pay the rent, just to put food on the table, just to pay the car note. So that means kids are left at home. Uh, you know, if you don't have money, because you, you ain't got no money in this budget for a babysitter. So unless you have a family mm -hmm. member or somebody, a neighbor that watches your kids. So this is not just impacting that worker. We're talking about, you know, an impact that will reverberate throughout our entire community because the moms are at work. And they're mm -hmm. at work because they're making $400 a week. 
Right. And then it also comes with that enrichment activities, all the things that we do to invest in our children, right, beyond their school day um, and beyond the time they get to spend with us that go to the wayside, that don't happen because there is no additional money for these things. But I think when we talk about these workers, about who's part time and who's full time, I don't think any of us would care, would entrust the care of the transport of our children, the feeding of our children to people who have so little investment, right? For people we've invested so little in. And I think we need to really rethink how we talk about these really essential positions that keep our schools clean, functioning, keep our kids fed, and all of these other things that happen in a school building. Um, and in a more concrete fashion, because we talk about these things like, oh, they only have to take kids to school in the morning and pick them up in the afternoon, or they only have to clean the school after hours. But these are all things that I think we would want the people who are doing these jobs to feel really good about the work that they do. And I know most of the people who do this work do it caring about these children and doing it knowing what the responsibilities are. So I'm not suggesting that people are shirking on the right. job. But it is certainly the case that we want to show appreciation to the people who do these really important things for our children and for our staff and for our teachers in these school buildings. And the way we show appreciation in this country is by how much we pay people. Yeah, and we know and these with feminization get... of labor, we do not appreciate jobs that we consider feminine um, and we do not appreciate people who we look to. Um, do this kind of work in this service capacity. We don't appreciate them either. We don't think about the work that they do as important, but they do a lion's share yes. of the work of helping us care for our children. Oh my God. I don't think anyone who's gone to school doesn't have a favorite story about a lunch lady that gave them their lunch when they didn't have lunch money or they forgot their lunch money at home or something, or they wanted an extra serving of those dried out mashed potatoes or whatever they serve you in school. I mean, everybody's got a story or the janitor that you got to know that helped you, you know, get into your locker. I mean, we all have fond memories, not just of our teachers, but of the staff that works in schools. And it's just, like I said, that's when I saw what the fight was over, the amount of money uh, and how little teacher aides and support staff in schools make it's just shocking it's appalling it's embarrassing uh and LAUSD step up I mean figure out how to pay these people what they deserve how to give them a living wage so they can support their own family so they don't end up the unhoused because I was just telling someone that Dr. Howard that so many people have jobs in a city like Los Angeles and are still unable to pay rent they sleep in their their cars they car surf they sleep on couches of friends and family members uh, and they figure out how to shower in restaurants and, and do other things that most people would find just unthinkable they are not quote unquote lazy and, and shiftless and unwilling to work so many people are trying to make it trying to do the right thing uh and they get hit with you know 416 dollars again i just don't even know where you live in a city like los angeles on that and that would be the same if you lived in new york or chicago or any of these big cities where the cost of living is just so incredibly high so uh, i too worry about the students that are not in school i'm glad to see that lunches are being provided food was still provided to those kids because we know a lot of kids depend on eating at school that may be their only hot meal maybe their only healthy meal uh, is the meal they receive at school. So I, I hope that the school district and the union and those supporting the union can figure out a way to, to get this uh, strike resolved sooner rather than later and we can pay these uh, employees uh, a living wage and, and what they deserve. Um, 
it's just shameful that here we are in 2022, 2023, still having to talk about how we pay those people that do these essential jobs. And you, you mentioned it, Dr. Carter, you know, during COVID, we talked about these essential workers. People were singing songs and, you know, bringing them food to their workplace and uh, applauding them, inviting them to Dodgers games and basketball games and all kinds of things. And, you know, COVID's over. Uh, back to treating essential workers pretty much the way they were treated before they were known and really called out as essential workers. But the work they're doing today is no less essential than the work they did, uh, you know, when we were in the heights of the pandemic. Thank you so much, Dr. Carter. Thank you so much, Dr. Howard. Always a pleasure to see both of you. Uh, your contributions are invaluable. I really uh, enjoy spending some time with you today. And we're going to keep a track on what ha- we're going to keep tracking what happens with this LAUSD strike because so many kids are impacted as well as so many families across uh, the county of Los Angeles and the city of Los Angeles. Be well, my friends. In hour two, I am taking your calls, 1-800-920-1580. And if you're watching on YouTube, drop us a comment or a question. We will read it online. Uh, also, make sure you download the KBLA app because you can watch and listen to not just Ariva Martin in real time, but all the shows on KBLA. And in the second hour, we're talking about mental health issues and students and, and more about schools and schools that are suing social media platforms, claiming that social media platforms are to blame for the rise in anxiety and depression amongst young people. A psychologist joins me who takes issue with that assessment and says it's not the social media companies. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Tonight, they're at home against Oklahoma City. The Clippers trail Phoenix by a half game for fourth place in the Western Conference. The ownership group that Magic Johnson joined to pursue the NFL Washington Commanders is headed up by billionaire Josh Harris, founder of Yahoo Incorporated. Harris also owns the Philadelphia 76ers and New Jersey Devils. Magic and Harris will find out at the NFL owners meeting in May if their purchase attempt is approved. The Commanders are on the block for five No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. This sports report was brought to you by Original Taco Pete. Aaron from Original Taco Pete's here, inviting you to our newest location at 3272 West Slauson off Crenshaw for Taco Tuesday, only 175. Call 323-348-4441 to order. is apparently the talk of the town. From the L.A. Times to our talk radio competitors. Hey, uh, there was a story in the L.A. Times about Tavis Smiley. Now he is back with his own radio station, KBLA. uh, Black-owned and oriented towards the black audience. So, Mo, considering your knowledge of Tavis uh, and his audience, uh, what's your take on this? Well, I think in a general industry sense, uh, I think it's always good when there are more outlets, there are more talk radio, there's more voices and representation at that point. I think talk radio had been too homogenous for too long. Real quickly, is it going to succeed, yes or no? I think it's going to succeed. You think? There's a new sheriff in town. We're KBLA Talk 1580, and we don't, and we black, don't down. black down. 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 Down.
scientists issued another dire warning about climate change. It's all but inevitable that the world will surpass 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels within the next decade. That's according to a new U.N. report. Beyond that threshold, climate disasters will become so extreme that people can't adapt and basic components of the Earth's system will be irreversibly changed. But there is still hope. Drastic action to cut emissions could make a difference, but few countries are on track to meet even their existing climate goals. And former President Donald Trump could face criminal charges in Manhattan as soon as this week. He has called for protests to oppose what he says is his looming arrest. Authorities in New York, Atlanta and Palm Beach, Florida are preparing responses to possible demonstrations. But there's really no sign that large-scale violence is being planned. Video showed deputies piling on top of a black man before his death. Ervo Otinio, 28 years old, died of asphyxiation in a Virginia hospital this month after sheriff's deputies and medical staff put their body weight on him. The footage released today shows Otinio being restrained on the ground for 11 minutes. Seven deputies and three hospital workers have been charged with murder. More than 1,000 schools in Los Angeles will be shut down today. 30,000 workers, including cafeteria workers, custodians, and bus drivers, are striking for three days. And teachers are honoring the strike, though they're not directly involved. Workers are striking over wages and what they call unfair labor practices. The workers are overwhelmingly women and people of color who earn just $20,000 a year on average. Republicans in the Iowa legislature, empowered by the state's recent red wave, have embarked on an ambitious new agenda that includes a costly school choice bill, banning books that they say teach about race and critical race theory, and legislation targeting the LGBTQ community, a historic divergence from Iowa's history as a civil rights bastion. Iowa has veered so far to the right in recent years that its political landscape is virtually unrecognizable from the centrist place that chose Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 and was one of the earliest states in the country to affirm same-sex marriages. A joke among statehouse reporters is that Iowa is becoming the Florida of the North, but without the beautiful beaches. And former Representative Bobby Rush, a longtime African-American leader in Illinois, plans to throw his support behind Paul Vallis in the mayor's race. Vallis is running against Brandon Johnson, an African-American progressive. This endorsement by Rush provides Vallis a potential boost among black voters heading into next month's election. Rush's endorsement would come as Vallis, who is backed by the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police, attempts to make inroads with black voters. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In the second hour, I'm taking your calls at 1-800-920-1580. And in this hour, we're talking about not only the rising mental health crisis with students and young people, 
but school districts, school districts around this country, starting with Seattle, that have filed lawsuits against big tech companies. They're claiming that these social media companies are to blame for the increase in mental health issues, including anxiety and depression. These school districts are arguing in these lawsuits that they're having to spend more money more financial resources on school counselors, on mental health counseling, and on educating kids about the dangers of social media. Uh, One of my experts today, a mental health professional, says, hold up, maybe uh, this is too much, too soon, maybe this is a rush to judgment, that the evidence is inconclusive. Uh, He says that social media is not to blame for the rise in depression and anxiety and other mental health issues that we see amongst today's students. And my legal expert, Dr. Marjolene Armstrong, tells us what, if anything, might happen to these lawsuits. Do these schools have standing? Are these lawsuits uh, akin to what we saw filed against big tobacco companies some 20, 30 years ago? And will they have any impact on the content Uh, that social media companies deliver to students. All of that when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I am back, and you're listening to Ariva Martin in real time. I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And in this hour, we're talking about this spate of lawsuits that have been filed against public schools. Uh, well, I'm sorry, spate of lawsuits that public schools have filed against social media companies, alleging that these social media companies are causing kids to experience anxiety, depression, and adding to the cost of providing mental health services to kids in schools. Uh, my guests in this hour, Dr. Earl Turner, he is a mental health professional, and Dr. Marjolene Armstrong, she's a professor of law at the University of Santa Clara Law School. Welcome, Dr. Turner, and welcome, Professor Armstrong. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with you, Dr. Turner. You wrote a recent blog article. You're not so convinced that social media companies are the cause of the rise in anxiety and depression amongst school kids. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the challenges is that we don't know what comes first. And so I think that is the nuance in understanding the research on this topic, because we don't know if it's that children who are experiencing anxiety anxiety and depression are now more likely to utilize social media as ways to sort of cope or just sort of engage in this behavior to sort of distract them from the feelings that they may be experiencing in that moment? Or is it that because they're spending so much time on these platforms and what they're engaging with, that content is now making them experience more levels of anxiety and depression? And so I think for me, it's really important for us to understand like there is this responsibility that Uh, parents have to make sure that their children are engaging in healthy social media use and also making sure that we're understanding that, um, you know, although social media might impact those levels of depression and anxiety, it's not something that is the sole factor that's contributing to these rises that we're seeing in mental health problems. Well, let me ask you this, Dr. Turner. Is there any way we could do a study or any kind of research to isolate the issues so that we can get a definitive response? Because these school districts that are filing these lawsuits say that they are relying on data and on research that says the, school, the social media companies are to blame. 
Uh, and you're saying, well, wait a minute, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Are they going to social yeah. media because they're already depressed and feeling anxious? Or is it the reverse? And I'm just curious from a scientific standpoint, you know, is there a way to isolate any of the variables and get to a definitive response that we can all agree on? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that it's possible to collect some data that will help us better understand this. And, and actually, there was a study that was recently published um, in Psychology of Popular Media that tried to look at this a little bit to detangle what may be contributing to these rises in sort of negative feelings and emotions. Um, and what they did was try to track using um, sort of devices to monitor uh, screens about how much time people were on social media. And they tried to minimize sort of a group of participants from engaging in, in social media use um, for less than you know an hour uh, per day in comparison to someone who may engage in a typical use. Um, and what they found over sort of a, I think a three to four week period was that those that limited social media use less than an hour actually reported better mood and feeling. So, I mean, there, it could be that impact of it. But for me, the issue is as a psychologist, I know that when we talk about things like anxiety and depression or any other mental health diagnosis, there are so many other factors that contribute to that. We have to look at family history. We have to look at you know, your own behaviors and actions. We have to look at the content that you're consuming in your in your day-to-day -day life. And so there, there are so many factors that might play a role into this. So I'm not saying that social media may not contribute to it, but we can't solely blame social media for the increases in, in these symptoms that we're seeing. Well, let me have you jump in, Dr. or Professor Armstrong. You are a Juris Doctorate, but as lawyers, we don't typically call ourselves doctors. We could. Uh, that's for another show. But uh, <laughs> Professor Armstrong. We're obnoxious enough. I know. We don't need uh, other titles. Boy, <laughs> uh, people hate us enough already. <laughs> but Professor Armstrong, what about these arguments on the parts of these schools? They're saying, look, we got data that shows that young people are spending hours and hours on social media and they come to school. They're stressed out. There are these uh, social media challenges that they're doing on TikTok, uh, viral challenges. Some one of the school districts in their lawsuit says they were kids were in a bathroom one, doing one of these social media challenges. Do these schools, the, the big question for me, the big elephant in the middle of the room is, do the schools have standing, legal standing to bring these lawsuits? And give us a quick definition of standing because I want my audience to be as educated as we are on some of these legal concepts. So standing means that the plaintiff, the person who's seeing, uh, suing, has a sufficient stake in the litigation that they have some kind of injury and that the litigation can't address that injury and they also have to be able to show a cause causation uh, the, of the injury by the person who's being sued and so in terms of the school districts having standing they have monetary losses, uh, but most of them are seeking injunctions against uh, the, the companies. And what they're challenging is the way that these companies use algorithms to kind of prey on the students in order to keep them online, or the adolescents, to keep them online longer, exposing them to more uh, possible uh, abusive language, uh, uh, damaging kind of posts from other people. And the reason social media companies do this is because they make money off of advertising. So the longer the kids are online, 
the more ads can, that uh, can be sold. And sometimes the advertising undermines the, uh, the body image of uh, female um, adolescents particularly. And other times the type of advertising can be directed at un uh, unhealthy types of ideation. So there was a lawsuit in England uh, where a girl committed suicide when she kept getting these advertisements about self-harm. And uh, these advertisements and uh, other messages discouraged her from seeking help from it. And so after she died, uh, the coroner uh, said he's not sure that he would call this a suicide because of the impact of the, uh, the advertisements and other things that the algorithm sent to those uh, to that girl. Yeah, I'm going to have you respond to that, uh, Dr. Turner, but I want to take a couple of calls. Uh, Sean, you're on the air. You're calling from Oakland, California. Oh, hey, everybody. So I'm, I'm a parent of two teenagers, and I just wanted to add a, a few of my observations because the legal thing, that's a great conversation. I'll be listening uh, afterward. But the pandemic, I go back to the pandemic and I think of, uh, I think everything was done properly regarding the children needed to stay home. That's a different discussion. But what it did will be felt through generations. So I think that is a something that needs to be looked at very closely in the foundation of these kids not being amongst one another. Uh, and, and then you throw on top of that the effects of social media. It becomes a really tricky prospect because we've all looked at our kids' social media and we've looked at social media and social media is relatively young. You know, I'm 55. So, you know, I look back and we're talking early 2000, mid 2000s. Uh, so we don't know the data and how it affects everybody, but we do know that all these kids nowadays, that's how they communicate but really, people need to get together and socialize. They need to be face-to-face. -face. They need to be together. They need to encourage each other face-to-face. -face. So I think that plays a lot into where we're at now. And then legally, I'm not sure, but I would love to continue to listen to your conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Sean, for your comment. I, I want you to respond, Dr. Turner. You can respond to what Sean said, but I also want you to respond to that lawsuit that uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Armstrong just mentioned. So she says, look, they sued the social media company because they said this girl committed suicide after she was bombarded with these ads because the algorithms, you know, if you look up hot chocolate, you're going to get 1,200 ads from, you know, Swiss hot chocolate and Hershey hot chocolate and every hot chocolate maker out there. So they, they have a way of taking your personal information and everything that you do and want, even before you even say you want it, if you even think it sometimes they're already bombarding you with ads. So do you think there's something to that case where they kept bombarding this young girl with these ads that, you know, drove her over the top, according to this, uh, you know, coroner? Yeah. I mean, obviously like, I have no legal background. Well, no, I'm just asking you psychologically, like, do you think that can happen uh, from a mental health perspective? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and again, I think, again, there are so many variables to this conversation. I think, obviously, the algorithm is going to send certain content um, to people that are looking at certain things on the apps. And so I think, again, there is this personal responsibility that we have as individuals consuming 
social media that we have to be responsible for for what we're doing. And so I think that is why we also need to make sure that we are having conversations with kids as parents and as adults around social media literacy. Like what are the types of pages that you are following and, and the content that you're consuming? So obviously like the algorithm is going to send you certain things if you're looking at certain hashtags or looking at certain posts. And so if you know that your child is experiencing some types of mental health crisis or concern, you might want to talk with them about what they're looking at on the app. If you minimize how much you engage with some of this content, then that the algorithm is going to change its behaviors by what you're actually consuming. But here's the problem, Dr. Turner. The school districts say it's not that easy. They say the kids don't have the ability to pull back. They don't have the ability to do less. They say it's like the nicotine in cigarettes, that once you get hooked, you can't just stop like folks who say they can't just stop smoking because there's something happens to them physiologically when they smoke. And once that nicotine is in their system, they crave it and they, you know, they lose all control over their impulses. So that's what these school districts are saying in these lawsuits is that when kids get on TikTok, they can't limit themselves. They can't set an alarm and say, okay, 10 minutes is up. I'm done. That the algorithm like the nicotine is addictive and they can't stop. And as much as they try, you know they're drawn in and they're drawn in and now it's five hours later and it's eight hours later so they're using some of those same arguments that we saw against big tobacco companies uh, around the addictive nature of cigarettes because you know folks used to tell people who smoke just stop oh just stop you lack discipline you lack focus you lack you know willpower and then the health professionals came out and said wait it's not that simple once you are addicted yeah. to nicotine, you can't just stop. Jump in, Dr. Yeah. Armstrong, Professor Armstrong. You want well, to? Uh, I have a, a copy of the uh, complaint at the San Mateo County lawsuit against the social media companies. And I just want to read you the uh, kind of allegations that they that they have. And so uh, it begins the, by saying that the defendants intentionally target youth because they're central to the defendant's business models. And then specifically, YouTube has substantially contributed to the youth mental health crisis by intentionally designing the social media platform to be manipulative and addictive. You, then it uh, alleges YouTube aggressively markets its platform to youth. YouTube intentionally designs its platform to maximize the time youth spend on its platform. YouTube knows its algorithms are manipulative and YouTube's, con YouTube's conduct in designing and operating its platform has significantly harmed youth mental health, and then schools have been detrimentally affected by the youth mental health issues created and exacerbated by YouTube. All right, Dr. Turner, what do you say to that? That yeah. this is not so, just like, casual. I... This is intentional conduct. Absolutely. And, and I... I am not trying to say that social media doesn't have a role that it plays in it. My thing is that it can't, it's not the contributing, the sole contributing factor to these issues. I will agree with you on that. Anytime that we find pleasure in anything, there is that potential to be addictive. So we can think about food, for example, like if you get pleasure out of it, yes, you might be addicted to and have problems like controlling your eating habits. But, but so let me ask you this, Dr. Turner, let that, me ask you that. Let me, I'm glad you brought that up. So the argument about nicotine is that there's something in the nicotine, some chemical, right? 
that does something to our bodies when it gets in our body. Is that the same for food? Because unless you're saying all food or like maybe ice cream has some addictive, you know, component. Isn't there really a difference, though, when you're talking about food versus a, a chemical like nicotine? It's not because it's not about the substance that's in it. As you sort of alluded to earlier, it's about what is your body thinking about when you're engaging with that content. And when your body does that, you enjoy it, you get pleasure, your brain is going to release some dopamine into your body, which is going to make you feel good. And you're going to want to go back to it. And so I think anything that you engage with that makes you feel good, your brain is going to say, oh, yes, I like this. And it's going to make you want to potentially come back to it. So I'm not saying that that doesn't happen with social media. I'm saying that we also have to be be responsible consumers of that content to say that, you know, we're going to be mindful about how much we do with it. Obviously, like teens are vulnerable and adolescents are vulnerable. They're still developing. So there is that piece of it where there has to be some adult involvement to also facilitate them but, using that content responsibly. But do you yeah, buy, there's do, this positive, uh, there's this feedback loop that the uh, the uh, social media companies have deliberately used all the time to do exactly what Dr. Turner is talking about in terms of st- uh, stimulating the, the dopamine and the response and the kids get the positive feedback that they physically feel. And the social media companies knew about this and designed their uh, programs and, and their their different offerings in order to kind of trigger that obsessive behavior you get because of the feedback, the positive feedback you get when you engage in that. And you know the feedback is physical. And and that's my question to you, Dr. Turner. If they are purposely manipulating the algorithm and the app to play to that part of your brain that where you experience pleasure and you want to keep doing something over and over again, they know that you don't have the ability to just pull back. They know you don't have the ability to, you know, limit your screen time. Does that cause you to think about this in a slightly different way? Because it's not casual. It's it's not oh, like we're just I mean, building it's, it's the content. It's a complex issue. Um, and I think that I am as a psychologist, but also as a researcher, I think I can understand all perspectives in terms of understanding this issue. So I think that there is that potential that these companies or they need to be uh, more mindful about how they create the algorithm and how it engages with, with individuals. And I think that they are, maybe it's because of the lawsuits that are coming up, but I think they're also understanding that they have to approach this differently and, and really make sure that they are also understanding what types of content that um, adolescents and, and teens are consuming because of the potential nature and that their brain is not fully developed as an adult. As an adult, we have we can understand some of these things a little bit more and try to work. We're not exempt to some of this because I think part of the issue too is like, as parents, we can tell our kids to not engage with this, but then we have our phones in our hand. Right. Hold, hold that thought. So you, and just, you just <laughs> went there on the grown people. Uh, hold that thought, <laughs> Dr. Turner. When we come forward after new sports and traffic, more about what we're all doing wrong as it relates to social media and what we need to do to get our own acts together before we blame the social media companies. Right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 
I'm back with Dr. Marjolene Armstrong. She's a professor at the University of Santa Clara Law School. And Dr. Earl Turner, he is a licensed clinical psychologist. And we are talking about these lawsuits that have been filed by school districts against social media companies, blaming social media companies for the rise in anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues that are facing our young people in schools. Schools are saying, look, we're having to spend more money on education, on therapy, and on mental health support. And it's all because of the content, the hours and hours of content that kids are consuming on social media. Dr. Turner uh, said, wait a minute, grown people. Y'all can't blame the kids because you all are on social media as much as the kids, i.e. Ariva. My kids are listening. Yes, he did say that. Yes, I'm going to be the first to raise my hand and say that I'm guilty of that, Dr. Turner. But before you respond, J.W. is uh, on the line. He's been waiting patiently. J.W., you have a question or a comment? Are you still with us, J.W.? You had a question or a comment? Yes, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I have a quick uh, comment I would like to raise. First of all, I know a few people that work in the industry, and I hope a lot of insiders will be uh, whistleblowers because uh, I've been informed about how it rewires the person's brain. Uh, matter of fact, I heard the government uh, made a comment about that a few months ago whenever they had the hearings with the big tech companies. They said literally the same thing about not... Um, being too actively involved with your cell phone on social media because it has the ability to rewire your brain. Now, I'm going to move forward from there. I recall back in the day they used to use the term um, subliminal suggestion. We all are familiar with how that functions and works. And this is just another repackaging or more intense or on steroids form of just that as well as we all know various corporations do various studies to find out whatever they need to uh, get with information to know how a certain product will make a person behave. And the bottom motivation is, is this greed. Um, mm. I can't recall the, t- the person that made, wrote the book, I think it was Corporate Society or whatever the, this book was, um, one of the main tenets was greed. I think it was corporatism or whatever. And um, it talks about American corp- corporate societies. And so greed is a motivation. Now, I'm going to step out the box and say this and conclude with this. I truly realize that this we live in a world system it's secular. We know secular doesn't have anything to do with spirituality or godly or anything positive. J.W., I want to make sure Dr. Turner has an opportunity to respond to your comment because you That's raised some it. good That's points. I, right. So we no, need, thank we you need for really calling. I want, elaborate on that. I know? want Dr. Turner to Dr. respond to this comment you made about social media companies rewiring our brains with their content. Does that happen to us, uh, Dr. Turner? I can't speak to that piece, but I think, you know, we we all know that the way that capitalism works, when people are trying to sell stuff, 
the more they send, they show it to us, it's going to influence our behavior. So I think, again, like there is this connection that we know of in terms of what people are consuming and how it's going to impact them on an emotional level. Um, and so that I think that is our reality. So it's a complex issue. I'm not trying to like give a pass to social media companies by any means. So don't label me as that. Um, but I will say that we do want to look at the whole picture. Like they they are playing a role in it, but we also have some responsibility as consumers of their product to say, and for parents to say, you know, we're going to minimize how how much our kids have access to this. Well, let me ask you this, Dr. Turner. You've done a lot of research yourself. You've seen a lot of this research. What does the research say about adults who spend a lot of time on social media? Because you said, you know, adults oftentimes can't monitor their kids because they're on their own social media sites on their phones or computers. Is there any research out there that says what impact, if any, uh, adults experience from spending hours on social media? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I can't I can't speak to that specifically because I've been more looking at the research on um, youth and adolescents. Um, so I imagine that there may be some similarities in terms of that. I mean, we're all human beings. And so right. I think the, the, the matter of the fact is that when we consume information, it's going to impact us on an emotional level. Um, as I sort of stated earlier, like if we get pleasure out of it, it's going to have some interactions with our brain and our brain chemistry and is, that is going to influence our behaviors in certain types of ways. So I think that as you sort of talked about with the cigarette stuff early, when we look at any type of addiction, as I sort of mentioned, there is going to be that connection. Like if your brain is activated and, and that dopamine is released, you're going to want to do something to make yourself feel good. But, but Dr. Uh, Turner, so let me ask you this. With, with nicotine, with drugs, with other things that are addictive, for people to, you know, sever their relationship with them. Oftentimes they have to go into medical treatment uh, for cigarettes. You know, they came out with the patch. They have all kinds of other kinds of treatment uh, replacements, replacing that nicotine. So if you were going to detox from social media, what would that take? I mean, I think part of it is like, we have to get to a space where it is not our primary source of enjoyment. And as sort of the caller mentioned earlier, I think that pan the pandemic shifted a lot of things for us. And so we have to understand, like, what had if the pandemic had not happened, what what would we what would social media look like for us right now? We don't know. And so I think we have to understand that, you know, a lot of things changed mm -hmm. as a result of the pandemic. I think as I would tell any client who might be dealing with some issues where, where they are um, having problems releasing types of things that might be unhealthy to them is that what are you going to do instead of that? Go outside, take a walk, exercise you know, spend time with your family, do other activities so that you're not always on your phone. And those are the things that as a society, like we we all consume, like we see, we go out to dinner, everybody's on their phone <laughs> instead of like talking to each other. You know what gets really me is when people are in the, in the movie theaters, people aren't even watching the movie, they're on their phones. Uh, Lynette, you're on the line, we're taking another caller. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Hello, everybody. This is such an uh, important topic of our day. They do not have any warning uh, pack on the side of the package, like a pack of cigarettes saying, warning, children have more pliable and underdeveloped minds should not overuse social media. If adults can uh, uh, have uh, that analytics, what was that analytics that turned a lot of votes for Trump and then uh, uh, Facebook uh, instigated the war between the Burmese and the um, 
and the uh, Rohingyas. This is on democracynow.com. This is some uh, years ago. They reported that. But if the adults can be swayed on social media, what do you think can happen to a, a child's mind? I mean, you can't charge a child as an adult. They, they shouldn't because his mind ain't fully developed. And I'll leave that right there. Y'all have a blessed day. Thank you, Lynette. That's an excellent point. Uh, you know, Dr. Uh, or Professor Armstrong, back to you, because this all started with these lawsuits. I started by asking you, did the schools have standing? You said, well, they have suffered some losses because they're spending money for education. Uh, but Dr. Turner says there's a causation problem. They're going to have a problem showing that the money they're spending and the damages that they've sustained are related to kids consuming too much time on social media. When we come forward, I want to talk about that. What kind of evidence will school districts have to show beyond just the kids are anxious and depressed? Uh, what kind of experts they're going to have to bring in? And what about these studies that are out there where Dr. Turner says they're inconclusive as it relates to the relationship between social media and kids' depression and anxiety? Uh, all big questions we'll answer on the other side when we come forward. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back with Dr. Earl Turner. He is a licensed clinical psychologist. He's also the founder of Therapy for Black Kids. Uh, he recently wrote a blog on this topic about, you know, the it's called The Race to Good Health, Social Media Use Really Problematic for Teens. Also, Dr. or Professor Marjolaine Armstrong from the University of Santa Clara Law School is with us. And I was asking you, Dr. Professor Armstrong, what is going to happen to these lawsuits? Will the schools be able to establish a causal link between the money that they're paying out for mental health and the algorithm and the content that's being pushed out to kids on these social media apps? Well, the relief that's being sought is more complex than just the money. Uh, one of the things that's being sought in the San Mateo suit is an injunction to prevent the companies or to have the companies not use those algorithms on children. Uh, there's also allegations of, of violations of RICO. There's allegations of, there was violations of uh, California uh, consumer protection law. Hold and, on a second, uh, Professor Armstrong. Also... What's the RICO? What, what are the facts for a RICO charge? Well, they're saying that there's been a conspiracy to, uh, to conduct the business affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity uh, between the companies. So that's one of the uh, uh, counts in, in this uh, this this uh, complaint, which you, you, know, you can get it online. It's fascinating. Uh, they also allege gross negligence. They allege that uh, the companies are committing a, a public nuisance and acts that are public nuisances can be enjoined so that the the, the uh, perpetrator can no longer uh, commit those acts without risking contempt of court. So the uh, uh, attorneys here have, have taken a number uh, of different tacks. And part of what's going on is this is a larger political issue. 
during the State of the Union, President Biden uh, said that these companies, social media companies, need to be held accountable uh, for the experiment that they are running on our children for their own profit. And so the idea that these companies have been more interested in profit than in the well-being of their customers is really behind uh, a, a number of the uh, lawsuits that are being filed because there's like 1,200 private lawsuits that are being brought uh, by families whose children have uh, specifically uh, shown some kind of injury uh, because of their social media use. Are you aware, so, Professor Armstrong, of any of these lawsuits making it pass, motions to dismiss, any of these lawsuits that have ended in a trial with a jury verdict in favor of the plaintiffs? I do not know of any. I don't know that it's been long enough. Uh, a number of these lawsuits were filed after uh, the whistleblower, uh, Francis uh, Hogan, uh, brought these materials from uh, Facebook and sent them to the Wall Street Journal and to, to Congress and kind of exposed the fact that this was an intentional plan to try to uh, direct these programs towards children and to get the children to be uh, regular users and in fact, lifelong users. And they did this even knowing that the uh, that the harms that can come in terms of self-esteem and, and identity issues from overuse of social media. So, so Dr. Turner, I'm going to stop you there, Professor too. Armstrong. Dr. Turner, that sounds so calculated. That sounds, as JW, our last caller, said, you know, capitalism at its finest, right? That That's big... Uh, you know, auto companies in the 70s, ignoring the data and the facts that said that cars weren't safe unless they had seat belts, but doing a cost benefit analysis saying, well, we'll pay the uh, jury verdicts, we'll pay the settlements, we'll pay for the dead people on the road because we're going to make more money without seat belts. And we know it's these kind of big impact lawsuits that cause big companies to change their behaviors, whether it's the tobacco companies. At one point, everybody thought they were too big to fail, that no one could take them on. And we start seeing these nuclear verdicts against tobacco companies. The automobile industry, we saw them being targeted by the consumer attorneys. Uh, and now it's the big tech companies. So uh, this isn't just casual conduct. This whistleblower told Congress that these companies understand what they're doing and they know what they're yeah. doing and they're making billions and billions of dollars and they're harming our kids. Yeah. And, and I'm going to try to stay on topic, but I think part of this conversation for me is bringing it back to what has America done to the black community? What have these companies done when it comes to alcohol and substances in black communities? And, and they're targeting us. So I think, you know, like one of the issues, which is, you know, to have to go there is like when it comes to impacting white Americans, then it becomes a much more important issue to sort of address. Um, and so I have to call just, it just out. A, a yeah, Dr. Turner, that, let, me, let me just say this. You can always go there on this show. We're rooting for everybody <laughs> black on this show. This show is exposing uh, those things that are both helpful and harmful to our community. So thank you for bringing that point out. So let's talk about how big tech. So I think I think that's part of the issue. Um, but I also I agree, like as the, the last caller mentioned, you know, understanding how 
teens are vulnerable. Their brain is not fully developed. I think that is part of the reason why there is this age sort of limit, you know, in theory for why, you know, kids have to be 13 or older to have access to this. That may not always be the case. So I think that, again, there is part of like the tech companies know what they do. They obviously do some research to understand these things. So they do have some uh, responsibilities to play in it. But we also have responsibilities as adults. And so I think like, you know, we have to all do better. Um, so I'm not I'm not giving a pass to these tech companies by any means. I just think that it's going to be really difficult from a sort of a science perspective to say that there aren't these other factors that might also be contributing to why we're seeing the, the increases in anxiety and depression in youth, partially sort of building off of what we saw starting with the pandemic to now we seeing like, what is that connection between because of how kids are struggling with their emotions and feelings and what's going on in life, that they're going to social media because this is their way to sort of feel better. And, and, and it can potentially become a situation where like, it is making me feel better, so I'm gonna use it more. And that plays into how the algorithm works. So I think that there are so many different things that we have to think about that are contributing to this problem that we do need to address. Good point. Yeah, and, and the attorneys for the companies are going to raise all the points that you're making in terms of the various factors that go into uh, teenage behavior and, and teenage psychology. So these issues, if this actually goes to trial, uh, will, will be uh, you know, litigated with experts saying that the uh, research doesn't prove the connection that the plaintiffs are, are trying to make. But I think there's this point that one of the callers made uh you know referring to capitalism but it's it's really this corporate uh idea that the interest of the shareholders are more important than anything else and so you have these company officials who are saying we need to maximize profits so that we can do right by our shareholders and the way that our system is uh, set up it's kind of hard to stop uh, companies from doing what benefits the companies as opposed to what benefits the society and the people who are using their products. So Dr. Turner, I know you're not, you know, working inside one of these big tech companies, but I imagine that these companies can operate. They can still be profitable. They can still sell advertising. They can still push out you know, hours and hours of content without intentionally targeting uh, young people, without, you know, engaging in conduct that they know is harmful to young people. Can you imagine a world where TikTok does that without this kind of intentionality that these lawsuits allege? I absolutely think that it's possible. I mean, I think like, like we all have to understand that this technology is not going away. It's it's going to somewhat take over our lives potentially at some point. So we do have some responsibility to understand how we better engage with this. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I've um, done in some of my work is really try to understand and also to challenge some of these tech companies around, like, how are you effectively developing your apps safely and also monitoring, you know, how the algorithm is working and what type of content are they pushing out so that we're making sure that teens are not consuming this and also understanding, like, even though if you push out certain content to teens, how they perceive that information, we can't control that perception. That is an individual behavior. And that is also something that is going to factor into how I can look at the same content as someone else. They might experience anxiety and I may not. 
Right. But we do know you did raise the issue of race and how some of these issues, you know, get played out when you start looking at them through the lenses of race. And we know a lot of these algorithms are specifically, uh, you know, pushing an agenda that's anti-black, pushing an agenda that's, you know, anti uh, LGBTQ and, you know, making it even more difficult for people of color and LGBTQ community, community members uh, to be on the apps without feeling as if they are being targeted and harassed. Uh, and so that's some of the issues that come up. And there's some evidence out there that shows. Uh, and I think I was just at an implicit bias class and a professor gave this example. Uh, if you Google Images of successful men. And he showed us Google came up with like 30 images and they were all white dudes. Not a black guy came up and even some white dudes in their underwear. So that was an image of a successful guy versus a black guy, you know, in a suit. So even when you talk about these algorithms, we know the algorithms uh, in many cases have implicit biases embedded in them as well. I'm sure that's going to come up in these lawsuits. Thank you so much. What an interesting conversation. Dr. Turner, founder of Therapy for Black Kids. Always a pleasure to see you, my friend. And always great to have a a legal mind like Professor Marjolene Armstrong, University of Santa Clara Law School. Join us. Thanks again to both of you for your brilliant. Brilliant uh, comments on this really complex issue. We're going to follow these lawsuits, see what happens with them, see which school district breaks through because somebody's going to break through. These social media companies, I predict, are going to go the way of big tobacco. All right, you can continue to follow me on all social media platforms at Ariva Martin. I'll be right back here tomorrow, 4 to 6, for your drive time news and expert analysis coming up next. Raw report after some news, sports, and traffic on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.